understand who you are apart from Christ. And so as we come to a study of your word about him and who he is and what he has done, God, we ask that in accordance with the psalmist that you would open our eyes so that we can see wondrous things in your law. God, be glorified this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see each one of you here today. We're thankful to that you've chosen to spend your Sunday morning with us. We're going to be starting a new series today in Mark. Now, we're going to start in Mark 1. Pastor Kevin and I talked about starting in Mark 8 and just going out from the middle to each end, and we thought, ah, what the heck, we'll start in chapter 1. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today. We're going to be looking in Mark for uh, several months, all the way up until Easter. And on the back of your bulletins, we really want to encourage you to uh, follow along with us. Be prepared the week in advance uh, with uh, with reading during the week. Now, uh, when we come to Mark, there are arguments about who wrote it. Uh, we've said before there are arguments about what color print there is in the red letter edition of the Bible, too. There are arguments about everything. But it has been traditionally accepted that this is John Mark, the son of Mary, whose home the church in Jerusalem met in in Acts 12.12. 12. Um, uh, and if that's the case, then uh, John Mark was a friend of Peter. Peter went to that home when he was released from jail. And um, it's very probable that when he closed his book in 1 Peter 5, he said in verse 13, She who is at Babylon sends you greeting, greetings and so does Mark, my son. It's probable that this is who he was talking about, John Mark. Um, when he says, my son, he was probably, possibly, probably a convert of Peter's, but certainly a very good friend. And, and it's uh, wondered if Peter was not only a major source, but possibly even the writer of, and that Mark was his secretary. So um, if it's this John Mark, he was a very uh, prominent figure in the New Testament church. It's believed he's the cousin of Barnabas over in Colossians chapter 4. And that when Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 12, it was this John Mark who went with them. Now, over in chapter 13, some things got kind of sideways and John Mark abandoned them. And this was a, not a good thing. But when Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go on their second missionary journey... Barnabas wanted to take his cousin along, John Mark. Let's take him again. And Paul said, no, he's already abandoned us once. I've learned my lesson. I'm not taking him again. And it says in 1539, there arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, so much so that they separated from each other. They quit working together because of the situation with Barnabas. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that a young man had caused this division. What a tragedy that older men didn't have wisdom enough to be able to get past it. What a, what a loss that we see in this. But Barnabas took John Mark and went on a journey and would never see Barnabas again. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Silas set out, having been commended, it says in verse 40, by the brothers to the grace of the Lord and started on what's called the second missionary journey back into Asia Minor. What's interesting is while we never see Barnabas again, we do see John Mark again. And Paul and John Mark mended their rift. They apologized to one another apparently because if this is him, as we've been saying, then it's this person in 2 Timothy 4 that Paul writes to Timothy and says, get him. Bring him to me because he is very useful to me in my ministry. Apparently there had been a major healing going on in this relationship. In Philemon verse 24, he lists him as one of his co-workers. Over in Colossians chapter 4, he trusts him as an emissary to send him out. And he says, if, if John Mark comes, do you receive him as uh, welcome him as from me? But there are a lot of 
questions about who wrote it, when it was written, who it was written to. And, you know, they think basically it was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. We think it was written to a Roman audience because Mark describes, he explains some of the geography and some of the traditions, some of the customs in, in Jerusalem and in Israel. So we assume it's written to an audience who doesn't understand what's going on. In fact, there's some Latin thrown in there every now and then for mass appeal. Um, so thank you. Someone got that. I am so thankful. No one got it in the first service, so I just kept running on the first and third. But anyway, um, if this is the John Mark, and, you know, there's argument about it. There's argument about everything. But frankly, friends, if this has been attested and accepted as the Word of God, these other things really are quite secondary. They're very inconsequential. If this is God's Word, the only question that remains is, what does it have to say to me? Amen? And so that's the reason we're, we're going to look at this book and ask God to speak to us. He begins in verse 1 with a very clear, direct, declarative statement. He starts verse 1 with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He uses that word gospel. Now we look at that word gospel and, and we kind of use it as mean it verifies something is truth. It's the gospel's truth. Or we think of it as talking about these four books. They, they give the story, they give the biography of Jesus. But friend, that's not what gospel is. That's not what gospel is talking about. The usage of the word, that's how we've come to interpret it. But when Mark was using that word, it, it, it really wasn't about a story or a biography. The gospel is the biggest headline of the day. It's the most important thing you need to know. If you're going to go to work and you only have time to hear one news headline, what is it? It's the gospel. That's how it was used in that day. It's, it's the headline on the, the newspaper. It's the first thing that comes up on usatoday.com, whatever it is, the, the blaring headline on the news. Listen to this. And when a king was coming to your town, I remember when I was a kid, Nixon was coming to town and he turned school out so we could go see Nixon. I didn't go see him. I kind of wished I had it now. But um, everybody was going to be going, and so I decided to go to the house instead. And um, what they did, before Nixon came to town, they sent news out ahead. The President of the United States is coming. If you want to see a living president, now is the time. You know. And when the king was coming to town, they sent runners ahead to declare the gospel. See, this is the most important event of the day. That's what the word means. And the runner would come ahead to announce the king is coming and we want you to get the roads ready so we don't damage the royal carriage. We don't want anything destroyed here, so get these roads repaired. And friends, to make the announcement is to give the gospel. To, to repair the roads is Matthew 3, 3. Prepare the way of the Lord and make His paths straight. The gospel is not a discussion. It's not a debate. It is an absolute emphatic declaration of truth. And when he says the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's not referring to a book. <laughs> it doesn't refer to the book of Mark. It refers to the message of Mark. And this is the declaration, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's not a retelling of the story. It is the story. Because, friend, the gospel is the core of what God has done for us in Christ. In Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to salvation. For the Jew first and then to the Greek. It's not limited to a book. It is the message of the book. And it is who Jesus is and what He has done. Anyone who came bearing that message was highly respected. 
Anybody who was the forerunner of the king was a very respected individual. And in Isaiah 52, 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's it. That's the gospel. I've got some good news for you. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. And what is that good news? Who publishes salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, in Isaiah 52, what he's talking about is that when they're off in some far distant field engaged in battle, the the army of Israel, Jerusalem wants to know what's going on. They want to know how the battle's going. But they're always in some valley far away that has lousy cell reception. Twitter is still in its nest, and Rupert Murdoch isn't going to be born for a couple more years. So how, how are they going to get the news out? Here's what they do. They send a runner. They send a runner with gospel. I've got good news for you. These were very highly respected individuals. One of my favorite Old Testament characters, a guy named Ahimeas, he was, he was a runner who ran back to Jerusalem with news. And what they would do is they would leave the battlefield and they would run toward Jerusalem and they were so excited with the good news that they had that they didn't wait until they got downtown. They, with the hill, the, the first hill that they could see Jerusalem, they would stop on the top of that hill and scream at the top of their lungs, Our God reigns! And that news would filter down into the valley and across the town while the runner's making his way. And whoever it was who carried the good news, whoever it was who carried the gospel was a highly respected individual. This is important news. And in Isaiah 61, he talks about good news when it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening a prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And Jesus stood up and read that passage about good news in Luke chapter 4. And after he had read it, the Bible says in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, (laughs) this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Why? Because, because of a book? Because of Mark that, that has been written down and we've canonized into our Bible? No. Jesus said, the good news has been fulfilled in your hearing today because I are it. <laughs> I'm the good news. I am the gospel. Well, they didn't take that message too well. <laughs> they tried to kill him and he, he walked through their midst because it wasn't time. He is the gospel. And friends, it's not just a story about a man. It's not an invitation to hear a story. It's an invitation to know the man. It's an invitation to meet, to know the man, Jesus Christ. And that's who Mark is talking about. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in knowing the man, we experience eternal life. What did Jesus pray in John 17, 3? This is eternal life. He's talking to his father. This is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you know Jesus Christ? If you know Jesus Christ, you possess eternal life. That's that's the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And He is inviting you into a relationship with Him. If you have accepted Him, if you know Jesus, you know eternal life. But friend, here's the reality. If you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, you don't have eternal life. I don't mean sit here and say, well, you don't know how much I go to church. I don't care how much you go to church. Well, I give a lot of money and I do really good things. I, I try my best. But friends, 
The gospel is not about trying your best. The gospel is about knowing the man. It is an invitation to know Jesus. And friend, in knowing him, there is no shame. How many of you ever had a friend that you just kind of got embarrassed being around him in public? You know, you go ahead and go in. I'll come in in a few minutes. <laughs> friend, there's no shame in knowing Jesus. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation. There's no shame in him. And what's interesting about this book is that it's a book full of verbs. There's always something going on. Jesus is always doing something. And at the beginning of a book full of verbs, he uses a sentence that doesn't have a single verb in it. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark jumps right in in verse 2. Let's read verses 2 through 8. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. There it is. There's the message and there's the preparation. Prepare the way, make the path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Did you know locusts is, is named as a clean food in Leviticus? How many of you really rather have bacon? Verse 7, and he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now this is down through verse 8. We're going to go all the way down through verse 13 today. In verses 2 through 12, Mark introduces three very important topics. First off, he introduces us to the ministry of John the Baptist. Secondly, he tells us about the baptism of Jesus. And thirdly, he tells us about the temptation of Jesus. In 11 verses, Mark covers those three things. Matthew, in dealing with those same three things, took 75 verses. Luke took 183. Mark does it in 11. He's a speed reader, I guess. You know, He microwaves. This is the microwave gospel right here. Why did he do it? Because Mark is a man with a mission. He is showing Jesus as a man on a mission. He has something to accomplish. There is work to be done. It is the book of actions. He doesn't, he tells us that Jesus taught. He just doesn't tell us what he taught. (laughs) There are only four times that he tells us a parable. There's only one time when he tells us about a discourse, but there are 18 miracles listed. And then he says, and there were others besides these. Mark is showing Jesus as a man of action. Jesus rarely standing still. And when you think about his audience, who is he writing to? He's writing to the Romans, the ones who said, what's the next next country to conquer? Where's, where's the next road to build? We want roads going out and tribute coming in. We want things done. We want to see progress here. And God used the, the writer to speak to the reader in terms that would be meaningful and understandable to them. He shows Jesus as a man of action. Forty-one times he uses the word immediately or straightway. Look there in verse 10. Mark chapter 1 verse 10. When he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens opening. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him 
into the wilderness. One commentator said that the, the key verse of Mark could very easily be 1045 where it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He said because Mark reveals Jesus as God's servant sent to minister to suffering people and to die for the sins of the world. Mark gives no account of our Lord's birth, nor does he record a genealogy as these are unnecessary in regard to a servant. Friends, the book of Mark could easily be summed up with Acts 10.38. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It is a book of action. And when you read this book, if you sit down and read this book from cover to from front to back, you're going to sense Jesus is in a hurry. He's going somewhere. And friends, if he is in a hurry to go somewhere, he is in a hurry to go to the cross. Everything from 831 to the end of the book is talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Absolutely, half of the book is pointing to the end. Everything, just a few verses later, we have the transfiguration. It's when he had gone as far north as he ever went in his ministry. He went all the way up to Boise. I'm turning around going home. But friend, he knew what was waiting for him at home, and it says that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Fifty percent of this book deals with the death, burial, and resurrection. Thirty-seven percent of it deals with eight days, those last eight days of his life, because Mark is showing Jesus as someone who has a mission to accomplish, and he's going to get it done. Now in verses 2 and 3, Mark coalesces many of the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning this forerunner, and he he puts them under the essence of, of Isaiah in, in saying the forerunner's coming. But here's what happens in verse 4. Look there in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now listen, baptism has been around for a long time. The Jews had been using baptism for a long time to baptize Gentiles into Judaism. It was to bring them, bring pagans into the faith. Baptism was for pagans. Baptism was not for the Jews. Except for that occasional rare event where someone recognized that they had been called to a specific task and they would self-baptize themselves. They still do that today. There are when Don and I were in Israel several years ago, our tour guide baptized himself in the Sea of Galilee every day. Every day. He said, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do today. And I'm kind of like Tony. He wants you to receive Jesus. <laughs> Just get saved, buddy. But baptism was not for the Jews. It, it was for the pagans. And what John is doing, he's calling Jews to be baptized. He's calling Jews to acknowledge their sin and submit to the coming kingdom of God, which John has been prophesying. So he's inviting them to confess their sins and get in line with what God's about to do. Look in verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. If this is the baptism for the forgiveness of sins... The forgiveness that is going to come in this kingdom that is about to be inaugurated. If this is a baptism about sin, why is Jesus being baptized? <laughs> He's the one about whom it says in 1 John 3, in Him is no sin. He's the one that Peter, in agreement with the prophecy, said in 1 Peter 2, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. 
If, if there's no sin in Jesus, why is He being baptized? And friend, that there's no sin in Jesus doesn't mean there was no opportunity. <laughs> doesn't mean there was no temptation. Here I am, however old I am. I've been in a lot of public situations. I've walked down in City Creek a lot of times, been in large crowds. I have never had a naked woman brought and thrown on the ground in front of my feet. Jesus did. Jesus experienced every temptation. We're going to see that in just a minute. Every temptation that we've experienced, He experienced. There's your billboard right there. There's your internet (laughs) right there. He had the opportunity and the temptation because Hebrews 4 says He has been tempted in every way, just like we are, and yet was without sin. And the reason He remained sinless in His absolute deity was because 2 Corinthians 5, He who had no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And we look at that and we'll say, well, Jesus was baptized, a baptism for forgiveness of sins. What are people going to think? What will people say? I don't know if I want to do that. What are people going to think about me? And we got to keep up appearances, and we don't want to do anything that's going to give people the, the wrong impression. And here goes Jesus being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That doesn't seem fair. And friends, Jesus, the sinless one, who should not be baptized for the forgiveness of sins is the one who walked up to John in Matthew chapter 3 and said, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And John baptized him. It's not fair that the light of the world should ever have to experience darkness. But in Matthew 27 it says, from the sixth hour of the day till the ninth hour it was dark over all the land. It's not fair that the well of living water, who if you come to me, you'll never thirst again, should ever have to cry out, I thirst. But he did. It's not fair the one who said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not fair that he should have to die. But he died. And it is not fair that the one about whom Colossians 2 says, he is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, should ever have to hang on a cross and say, Dear God, why have you forsaken me? But friends, Jesus endured everything that it was not fair for Him to endure. He should never have had to endure it. And He did it for us. (laughs) That God was in Him reconciling us to Himself. Jesus is God's invitation to you into a relationship with Him. Baptism was, for everyone who took part in it, a submission to the divine will of God. For the people... It was the divine will of God that they receive forgiveness of sins. And they submitted to that. For Jesus, it was the divine will of God that He provide forgiveness of sin. And He submitted to that. And friends, having begun in submission, having begun His ministry in submission to the will of God, that that He was a part of crafting from the very foundations of the world, having begun in submission... Then three and a half years later when he gets to the end of that ministry, he began in submission. When he gets to the end over in Matthew 26 and it says he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, My God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He began in submission. Now at the end, how can he do anything other than end in submission with? Nevertheless, not my will. What? But thine. He began in submission. How can he do anything other than? end 
in submission. Look there in verse 12. When he came up out, verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 10, Mark chapter 1, verse 10. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And now we have the testimony of three witnesses. We have Jesus established by the mouth of three witnesses that He is the eternal Son of God. First off, in verse 1, Mark himself said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the first witness. Second witness is in verses 7 and 8, when John the Baptist says the fulfillment, the last of the Old Testament prophets, looks and says, verse 7 and 8, After me comes He who is mightier than I. I have baptized with water. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And the third witness that we have is Jesus comes up out of the water having been baptized, still standing there, the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove, the voice of the Father declaring, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now we have the voice of the Godhead. We have three witnesses attesting to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And here when the Father speaks, the Father speaks two times during the ministry of Jesus. Once here and once about three years later at the Mount of Transfiguration. Here, he looks himself, he addresses himself to Jesus, says, you're my son, I am well pleased with you. Three years later at the Mount of Transfiguration, he addresses himself to those who are standing with Jesus. When he says in Matthew 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And when Jesus was baptized, there are those who, there are those who say that his submission to the baptism, to his baptism made him the Son of God. That's a bunch of nonsense. That no more made him the Son of God than your water baptism made you a Christian. There are others who say that when the Holy Spirit descended in a dove, that was really the Christ descending on this poor slob named Jesus who overtook and used the body of Jesus for three and a half years until it got to the crucifixion, and then Christ said, well, I'm out of here, and left Jesus to suffer the consequences. That is absolute heresy. That's disgusting heresy. Who is Jesus? He is God the Father. From the very beginning, there are those who say that from this point forward is when he, we have what's called the dawning of His messianic consciousness. It's, it's when He begins to realize who He is. The temptation was Him realizing, oh, I really am the Son of God. That's ridiculous. Because when He was 12 years old, His mom and daddy came looking for Him. And what did He say to Him? You should have known. That would be about my Father's business. Jesus knew who He was. And friends, the baptism was the, for the purpose of revelation of the Son of God, but it wasn't to reveal it to Jesus. <laughs> The purpose of the baptism was to reveal the sonship to John. Because John is one of the witnesses. Look at what he says there in Mark chapter 1. John has been preaching this message in verse 7. After me, after me, after me, after me, after me comes one who is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what he's been saying for all this time. For however long is about six months of ministry is what they think he had in total. But look over in John chapter 1. Look in John chapter 1, and he changes the message. The purpose of the baptism was the revelation of the sonship of Jesus to John. Because all this time he's been saying after me, and over in John chapter 1, he changes it in verse 26 to, I baptize with water, but among you. See, it has been saying after me. Now he's saying, no, he's, he's among you. Stands one you do not know. 
The baptism of Jesus was the fulfillment of a prophetic word given to John. And at day 40, he's standing there and saying, I want you to know something. I've been telling you he's coming after me. I want you to know he's among you now. <laughs> he's here now. That's on day 40. Look in verse 29 on day 41. The next day, we're day 41 now. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man. He ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water. He's about to tell us what's the purpose of the baptism that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness, this is the Son of God. Why was Jesus baptized? It was for the revelation of his sonship, not to himself, but to John, who is a third witness. Let's go back to Mark chapter 1. Let's go back to Mark chapter 1. We've had the baptism, and most everybody we've ever baptized said, wow, that's been a really great experience. Well, Jesus' experience is pretty stinking cool, too. I mean, the Holy Ghost descends in the form of a dove and lands on him, gets the chill down his spine, right? The Father booms his voice from heaven. I mean, how many of you have had that happen, you know? How many of you hear the voice boom every day? If you do, I'm riding home with you today. I want to listen to that. It's been a great experience. So everything's going to be uphill from here. The church is doing great. The, the, uh, the attendance is going to continue to grow. People are going to get saved. It's going to be wonderful. Except for verse 12. The Spirit immediately drew him, drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Friend, just when you think everything's looking up, it's going to get better and better. The Bible says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. And friends, temptation in the wilderness was not an afterthought. It was not Satan taking advantage of a good opportunity. Matthew chapter 4 makes it very clear. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil. And while there, he experienced all three categories of sin as lined out in 1 John chapter 2. There are only three categories of sin. All of them fall there because when he was tempted to turn the stones into bread... That's the first one listed in 1 John 2. That's the lust of the flesh. And we look at that and go, well, lust of the flesh. Man, I thought that was sex and porn. Well, sex and porn would certainly fall under the lust of the flesh. But remember this. When Adam and Eve were tempted, they were not tempted with sex. <laughs> they were tempted with food. And any one of us who's ever struggled with trying to get that one under control knows how dire that struggle can be. Sex is a drive, but it's the number two drive. The number one drive is the drive to survive, and that's eat. You know, brother, he weighed 600 pounds after having lost 300. It took him three years to lose 300 pounds. And I said, brother, what's going on? He said, he said, Robert, he was a great brother. We had a good time together. He said, if this were drugs or alcohol or tobacco or something like that, I'd just quit buying it. But this is food. I've got to have food to live. And this is what he said, Robert... Every time I open my mouth, it is a test. 
We look at this and say, oh, turn stones into bread. That's not that big of a deal. Friend, this was a very real temptation. And those of us who struggle with weight issues know the severity of this one. Second temptation. He takes him to a high point in Matthew chapter 4. and He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Friends, this is the lust of the eyes. Look at what I can get. Look at what I can hand to you. You know what this is? There's already been a, there's a promise. Philippians 2.10, he said, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. There's the promise. That's where we're going. And when Satan took Jesus and put him on that high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, you know what was in those kingdoms? <laughs> it was all those knees. It was all those voices that are going to bow and confess. And Satan looks at him and says, you see all this? I'll give you all of this. Doesn't this look great? I'll give you all of this if you'll just bow down and worship me. And you know what he's really offering Jesus? There's a shortcut. Let me give this to you without the pain of the cross. He knows what temptation is. And that third temptation, when he took him in Matthew chapter 4 to the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... I want you to prove yourself to me. And this is the third temptation, the pride of life. If you really are who you say you are. If, you, if you're really all that. If you're, if you're really that great of a Christian. You think you're a child of God. What are you acting like this for? Why don't you prove it to me a little bit? If you really loved me, you'd give me that watch. I was standing with a guy that somebody said that to him one day. <laughs> he said, well, I do love you. You're not getting my watch. <laughs> okay, that's good. But anyway. It's that appeal to your vanity. Prove to me you are who you say you are. Prove to me you're as good as you're supposed to be. And how many of us have fallen into that trap? I remember as a kid, I was about eight, seven, eight, nine years old, something like that, and my dad bought me a boomerang. It was a wooden boomerang, and there was a field down the road from the house, and we'd go down there, and he'd tell me how to throw that boomerang, and he'd come back. And um, I got so it'd come back, and so I was down there one day by myself throwing the boomerang. See, you can do that with a boomerang. You can't do that with a Frisbee because the boomerang will come back. See, right here. And so I'm down there throwing the boomerang and walking home, and on, across the road, there are these other boys going the other direction, and they start yelling at me. What are you doing with that thing, the boomerang? Can you throw that thing? Yeah, I can throw it. I bet you can't throw it. Well, I can throw it. I bet you can't make it come back. Well, I can make it. Well, if you can, prove it. I don't want to. Prove it. And I'm such a doofus, you know. I get my boomerang out there, and I'm going to prove it to them. And I biffed it. <laughs> I didn't throw it right. I was nervous and every other kind of excuse we can come up with. And so I threw it, and it landed just right in front of them, and the elbow of that boomerang hit on the ground first, and it just broke my little boomerang. You know. And they just laughed and walked off. You're the dumbest thing. <laughs> so I picked my boomerang up and take it in my dad, and he says, well, that's interesting physics with how that broke, but it's ruined, so you can go throw it away. Friend, every one of us have experienced the pride of life. If you're all that, why don't you prove it? And in those temptations, oh, those aren't that big of a deal. In those three temptations, Jesus experienced everything that you have ever or will ever go through. And it was the Holy Spirit who drove him, who led him into the very face of those temptations so that it could honestly be said about him in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
We have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Friends, no matter what it is that you're facing in temptation, Jesus has experienced it. He knows what that temptation is like, that that temptation to despair, that temptation to discouragement, that temptation to say, Dear God, where are you? That temptation to whatever your secret sin is. He knows what every one of them are. He has experienced them. He has conquered that temptation so that he could say, without sin. And we look at that and go, well, that's nice. I'm happy for Jesus. That's so sweet. What good does that do me? He continues in Hebrews 4 and verse 16 when he says, because of this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we can find mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And friends, there are times that we look at temptation and we say, I I can't endure this temptation. I want you to listen to Jesus when he says, I know, but I can. There are times every one of us look at the temptation and say, I've fallen to this one so many times before. And Jesus says, I know, but this time I'm going to take care of it. And every one of us have felt that time when we've looked at him and said, I just feel so empty. I just have nothing inside. There's nothing left inside of me. And he says, I know. Would you be the glove and let me be the hand? And I will walk you in victory through it this time. This is my big one. (laughs) This is the big one. I feel so condemned by this one. 1 John 3 says, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. Two questions. First one is, What temptation are you struggling with? What sin is it that you want to commit? Now, nobody wants to admit they want to commit sin, but, friend, every one of us has wanted to commit sin. If we hadn't, we wouldn't have done it. What sin is it that you want to commit? What is it that you're tempted to? Let me, let me, if you look at the rest of your life and say, God, I'm never going to do that again, you have just set yourself up for failure. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? Let's take this in chunks that we can chew. I don't have a promise about tomorrow. I don't need to worry about tomorrow. I'm facing a temptation today. So let's take this in chunks we can deal with. Jesus, today, just this one time, Today, right now, this one only, I, I want to give you this one as a sacrifice. And this one time, I'm going to give this to you and I'm not going to give in to this temptation. Just today. We'll let tomorrow worry about itself. I have today, right now. I'm going to give you this one right now. And then tomorrow, when it comes up again, just take it just today. Don't worry about next month, next year, next decade. Just what's in front of me right now? This one, God, I give this one to you. Let's take this in terms that are reasonable that we can actually handle. When that same temptation keeps coming around, we just keep giving it to him again and again. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've used that very method. I'll do it next week, but right now I choose not to. And then, friends, when next week comes along, I look back at last week and go, well, I didn't do it last week. I may as well not do it today. hate to ruin a record here. We've got a streak going, right? Jesus, give me strength. And we look at it and say, well, I just wish that temptation would go away. Well, the reality is Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil. That temptation is still God at work in your life, inviting you to trust in Him more. And we can sit back and say, 
Well, I wish it'd go away. There are two realities here. First one is, it wasn't until after the temptation in Matthew 4.11 that the Bible says, then the devil left him. Friend, there will be peace on the other side of that temptation. But the other reality is, in Luke chapter 4, the Bible says that the devil left him waiting for a more opportune time. Jesus had to face those temptations again and again and again. Do we really think we're so much more important to the Father than Jesus that we won't have to? What temptation is it that you are wrestling with? Jesus can help you with it. Second question, what is it that you have done that you're trying to hide? What is the secret sin that you think nobody knows about? Listen to me, Jesus already knows about it. And he died to forgive you of that sin before you even committed it. He loved you as if you were forgiven before you even did it. What is it you're trying to hide? What would happen if you just came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm ready to be clean about this thing. I'm ready to be honest. Can you hear the testimony of John the Baptist who when he saw Jesus come over that hill that day, he's busy down in that, that little ravine in that little bitty puddle of water baptizing folks and here came Jesus over the top of the hill and he looks up and there he is and he says, Oh! There he is, the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the whole world. I have borne witness to the fact that this is the Son of God. Would you listen to the testimony of Mark? <laughs> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Would you listen to the testimony of John the Baptist? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. Would you listen to the testimony of the Father to say, this is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If not, why not? What are you waiting for? A better day? Are you waiting to work a little bit harder? Friend, there's no way you can work harder. There's not, not enough work you can do. Jesus, Jesus did all of it on the cross for us and now His invitation is, would you come to me and just let me have all of that sin? I've already paid for it. And I want to give you something in return. I want to give you the oil of joy is what He said in Isaiah. I want to give you forgiveness of sin. I want to give you a relationship with my Father through me. What is it you're waiting for? To be good enough? Don't try. You can't do it. Jesus has already paid every penalty for the sin that you carry. Another question. Have you followed Jesus in believer's baptism? <laughs> if not, why not? <laughs> well, I don't know what people will think. Well, what in the world did they think about Jesus when he came down to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? Well, I don't want people talking about it. They talk about Jesus. Have you followed Jesus in believer's baptism? If not, why not? Is it that pride of life? Well, what will people think? Friend, Baptism is our first opportunity to look at Jesus and say, You're my Lord, I'm doing it. <laughs> Dunk me, baby. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be a Christian, if you'd like to know more about what God's Word, the Bible, has to say about how you can experience forgiveness of sin, would you please talk with us afterwards? We'd love to share with you how you can become a Christian. If you have never followed Jesus in believer's baptism, you've accepted Him as your Savior and Lord, but you've never followed Him in baptism, would you talk with us? Let us, let us share with you what 
the Bible has to say about the importance of that step of obedience. Friend, we're going to see Jesus moving a lot. <laughs> we're going to see him doing a lot of things. And it's all with a purpose in mind to bring people to the Father. Do you know Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, Father, the, the, the invitation that you have extended, we've, get, we've gotten invitations in the mail, we get them in texts, we get them in the emails, inviting us to parties, to get-togethers, to all kinds of things. But God, the invitation that you sent to a relationship with you, the invitation of Jesus Christ, oh dear God, how much you must love us. Father, we, it's so easy to be taken away and drawn aside with the temptations and say, oh, but it's so big. Father, would you please this morning by your Holy Spirit cause us to see the magnificence of the victory of Christ and the power that he wants to live through us today, giving us victory over that temptation. Father, for those that this is a foreign message, they've never accepted Christ, I ask you by your Holy Spirit, please speak to each one in terms that we can understand of our need for Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have accepted, we want to walk in obedience today. To do the thing that you're calling us to do, no matter how embarrassing it may look, what people might say, God, please be glorified in us. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move.